We're going to, to read from John's Gospel this morning, John chapter 12, and beginning to read at verse 20. Um, it seems to have been a week I've noticed in the news and, and politics um, where the Prime Minister and the government, and I'm sure it's the same for every government, whenever they're in, is getting a bit lambasting, things are not going very well. And I was reading about his problem is that uh, he's been over-promising and he's egged it up too much in terms of his promises before the election in order to, to win our votes and our support. And of course, there's a lot of struggles now in terms of dealing with migration and the numbers, which he promised was going to be reduced. And then we have the Brexit. He was a big supporter of Brexit and how it was going to lead us into a land of milk and honey. And there'll be loads of money for the NHS and we'll be doing wonderful trade deals all over the world, and our economy would start to boom. Lots of promises. He was going to deal with the, the social care needs in our community. He was going to deal with the NHS. And like everybody before elections, promises are made in order to, to win your vote, basically. And as this government is experiencing, as I think probably every government in the past has as well, delivering on the promise is not quite as easy. And you start to get the feeling somehow, don't you, that they've been trying to pull the wool over our eyes for quite a while as to what they can do and what it will mean if we give them our vote and our support. Jesus never tries to pull the wool over anyone's eyes when he invites people to come and to, to give him, as it were, their support or to follow him. And in this passage we're going to read, it it's, takes place after Jesus has entered Jerusalem. Um, it's during the Feast of the Passover. And it's a passage which reminds us that Jesus is nothing but honest. And he doesn't make exaggerated claims there's no false promises. And he speaks quite clearly and honestly about what's involved if we're going to, as it were, be a supporter of Jesus. If you want to know him and follow him. And he lays it out quite clearly in this passage what we can expect. So let's read from John chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip, in turn, told Jesus. Jesus replied, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The man who loves his life will lose it. For the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. My father will honor the one 
who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there and heard it said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. The crowd spoke up. We have heard from the law that the Christ will remain forever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? Then Jesus told them, you're going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have the light before darkness overtakes you. The man who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Put your trust in the light while you have it so that you may become sons of light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. Before we come to look at this, this passage this morning, uh, we're going to, to sing a song. Um, it's song number 127. One, two, sorry, 1217, if you're using Mission Praise. It's a song which, uh, just before we sing it, um, it's actually quite offensive. I've noticed again in the news this week, there's been a lot on about offending people and people being offensive. You'll all be aware of the story going on in the world of cricket and the chap who's faced some horrendous racism as a cricket player had to himself apologize for, for stuff he said online, etc. years ago. And he had to apologize for anything and anyone who was offended by his tweets against, I think it was against the Jewish race and something against African culture. But he had to apologize for being offensive. And then another cricket player, an ex-England captain, he also discovered actions in the past have been brought to light. And he also was forced in the news to apologize for those he had offended and for his offensive behavior. And you know this is fairly part of our culture today. There's a lot of offending going on, a lot of people finding offense, a lot of people giving offense. And singing this song, a lot of people might find this song actually quite offensive today because it's a song which speaks about us as human beings being sinful. You know, there's something wrong with us. We've got a problem. And it speaks of what God does to deal with the problem, the problem of our guilt before him and the fact that we face God's judgment. It's a song which speaks of how God reaches out and deals with that through Jesus who who goes to that cross and gives up his life as a self-sacrifice, even that term, people will find the idea of a sacrifice, giving up yourself for others, to deal with our sin. He takes God's judgment upon himself so that we can be forgiven and welcomed into the life of God and into the kingdom of God. It can be quite offensive. Paul said that, didn't he? The cross 
it's actually quite offensive. It's a, it's a stumbling block. It's a barrier for lots of people. I've got a colleague at work who, who goes to church and they, every week and involved in a house group as well. And, and we can talk about um, the gospel in terms of loving people and, and being good to people and, and God has been a God of justice and, and uh, God who helps us. But whenever anything has cropped up to do with the idea of sin or the idea of, of God's judging sin, the idea of the fact that we need a saviour, the idea of, of Jesus dying on a cross other than being a, a, a tragedy or an act of love is, is something they find quite hard to actually grasp and find it actually sometimes quite disgusting. Paul says the cross is a stumbling block to Jews, to Greeks, to everyone else. It's utter foolishness, utter nonsense. But for those of us who are being saved, he says, it's the power of God for our salvation. So we'll stand and sing about the power of God as revealed in the cross. <clears throat> in the story, some Greeks come to see Jesus. Who are they? Why do they want to see Jesus? We're not actually told, but we do know the Greeks were the sort of great thinkers of the day. Uh, they were the ones who were known for searching after truth, interested in philosophy and the latest ideas and, and uh, religions. And in the Men's Fellowship, a few weeks ago, we were looking at a wee bit in, in the Gospel of Acts, and there's a great wee verse. Just to paraphrase it, when Paul went to Athens, and he went to, it was a place where the Greeks loved to basically sit around doing nothing all day other than discussing the latest ideas and philosophies. For some people, that might be heaven. Other people... Not so. But they were known for, for being like that. They were interested in new ideas, understanding truths that people were trying to proclaim. And many of them had, in fact, been drawn and attracted to the Jewish faith. Perhaps because they were a bit fed up and living in a world with a multitude of gods and the Jews had this one God. It was clear. It was simple. Maybe they were drawn by the Ten Commandments. Again, it was, it was very sort of clear ethical guidance for them in their life. Thou shalt not. But our Greeks, probably part of this group, come to belong, in a sense, to the Jewish faith and link themselves on to it. And they've come with the crowds of people up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And now they want to see Jesus. They want to to meet him and to speak with him, to find out what he has to say. I wonder why maybe they still, for all their searching, for all their questions, maybe they still quite hadn't found, as the song says, what they were looking for. And now they're, they're wondering, does this Jesus have the answers? They would have heard all about Jesus earlier in, in the chapter. John tells us that the news of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead was, was, as you can imagine, spreading like wildfire through the city. This amazing guy. And they wonder, who is this man? Who is he? 
what's he got to say to the questions I have? Is he really the way, the truth, and the life? Can it be true? What does Jesus have to say to our questions and our searchings? And so they come to the disciples, Philip and then Andrew, and they request to see Jesus, to meet with him, to talk with him, and hopefully to get to know him. And maybe, maybe there's someone here this morning or somebody watching, and maybe you're a bit like the Greeks as well. You've got lots of questions and searching. You're interested in God, but you still haven't quite found that answer that we're really looking for deep down in our hearts. And maybe you wonder, as you hear about Jesus week by week, and um, we wonder, is he really what I'm hearing? Is he really the way to God? Is he the, the one who's going to provide the answers for me? If only I could meet him and talk with him. And of course, the answer, and the good news is this morning, is that we can and we do as we gather in this place. And we can meet him and get to know him. But only on his terms. And that's what this passage spells out. It's interesting, the Greeks don't seem to get their own personal uh, interview with Jesus. It seems as though Jesus turns to address uh, the Greeks and the crowds. It's as if the request to see him and get to know him triggers something in Jesus' mind. Something goes on in his mind. And he's filled with thoughts of his impending death and his trip to the cross and to Calvary. And he speaks of his hour. John speaks of the hour of Jesus' death and his glory, which is, in this gospel has been coming and coming and coming, is now here, says Jesus. And notice John combines Jesus' death and has been glorified together. It's on that cross that Jesus will be glorified. And as he speaks of his death, so he answers the question that the Greeks have, and he answers their request, and he spells out for them who he is how they have to actually see him, and what it will mean to, to meet him and to know him. Where can we meet him and what will that actually mean? Who is he? Jesus uses three wee sort of pictures, and we're not going to go into depth in them all. We'll sort of fly over them, if you like, because I know time is going already this morning, and we'll maybe land in a few, few spots here. Verse 24, Jesus is the lonely seed. The seed that has to go into the ground be planted before there can be a harvest. So Jesus says he is that seed that actually has to die first. He has to be buried in his death. And then there can be a harvest of lives of men and women for God. In verse 32 and 33, Jesus speaks of being the son of man. The son of man who's going to be lifted up to die. To die on a cross and bring glory to the Father. And that really upsets them. That really causes total confusion. How can the Son of Man be lifted up to die? They're thinking, in their minds, the Son of Man would be associated, slightly sort of a mysterious figure in the Old Testament, associated with an idea of who the Messiah was and the Christ. But they definitely knew the Messiah and the Christ and the Son of Man did not belong on a cross. And they didn't like Son of Man dying because of course the son of man and the messiah would be the 
the long-awaited God's champion, as you know and as you heard, who would come in power, authority, and would, like the Lone Ranger, riding into town, getting rid of the baddies and setting everybody free and making things right again. And Jesus turns their thinking completely on its head. And he often does that for us, I think, with the way we think. Challenges us to think about things differently. And he says, I am the son of man, but I'm going to be lifted up. And I'm going to be glorified, but not initially to a golden throne. I'm going to be lifted up to a wooden cross. And it's not to a crown full of jewels and a crown of glory, but with that crown of thorns. And then, and only then, says Jesus, can all men, both Jews and Greeks, be drawn to him and into the kingdom of God. And then in verse 35, he says, I am the light of the world. And that light is going to shine and be with you just a little bit longer. And then it's going to be snuffed out. But when it's snuffed out, only then can men and women, sons and daughters, become people of the light of God. I wonder if you pick up the theme that Jesus is saying there. Do you hear what he's actually saying to these Greeks? What he's saying, I think, is that we need to see him. You need to see him. I need to see him. They needed to see him, not simply as the answer to their questions and their searchings, but first and foremost as their saviour, dying on the cross for them. Not just to give them intellectual answers that would satisfy, but to answer their greater needs their greatest need to having their sin dealt with before God. And I think that applies for us today. God made man in his image, we're told, and man has returned the compliment. And we do it, we all do it. I've done it, I'm sure you've done it yourself. It's easy to shape Jesus, if you like, in our own image. Jesus the philosopher. Jesus... The, the moral teacher. Jesus, the political revolutionary who's all out for justice. Jesus, who's out for the poor. Jesus, the champion of women's rights. Jesus, the personal problem solver. And there's a bit of truth in maybe in all of these things. It's easy to shape Jesus in our image. And that's what we do. We see the Jesus who conforms to our expectations. The Jesus we're comfortable with. The Jesus we find safe and suitable. And maybe like those Greeks, for all of us afresh today, we need to see him not simply as we want him to be, but as he really is. Our saviour. The one who dies on the cross and without whom it's impossible to see or to know God. If that's who he is, then he spells out for them where they can meet him and what that will actually mean. The Greeks will see him on the cross and they'll meet him, as it were, beyond the cross. And Jesus is very clear what that will mean for them and what it means for you and I today. Because the cross was not certainly not an ornament of jewellery <laughs> and it's more than a symbol of our salvation that we see in our churches but Jesus makes it clear in the New Testament, makes it clear that the cross is to be the shape of our lives and forms the pattern of our living 
as Christians. Think of their question. Uh, we would like to see Jesus, they say. Good, says Jesus. That's fantastic. That's brilliant. <clears throat> but this is the road I'm going to travel. And if you want to know me and meet me, then this is the road you also will have to travel. This is the price that I'm going to have to pay. And if you want to know me and follow me, then this is the price you're also asked to pay. Because if you want to know me, it's going to involve a life of, verse 25, it's there, a life of self-sacrifice. Not probably one of our favorite words in our current climate. The man who loves his life will lose it, but the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. The cross for Jesus was that ultimate act of self-sacrifice. And he calls us to enter into that experience in a way with him. He uses a, it's a Hebrew idiom. It's a way of making a point here in this verse by using extreme contrast. He's not saying you actually have to hate your life. It's just a, it's a way of speaking to get the point across. And he says, if you love your life, that is, if your life is orientated around your, yourself, basically, <laughs> you, you're the boss, and everything you do you make the decisions. Everything you do is for your benefit, for your purpose, for your ambition, for your goals. If you see yourself as totally as the king of the castle and the universe revolves around you, it's the sort of attitude that we read about when I read about two young girls in, in the playing room and they're on a rocking horse, two sisters, a younger sister and an older sister. And the rocking horse was quite small, and they're squeezing onto the rocking horse. And the older sister just turned to the younger sister, who was holding onto her quite hard, and said, if you would only let go and get off this horse, there'd be more room for me. And sometimes that's our attitude in life. We live like this. Living for ourselves at the very center. And that's all. And Jesus said, if that's the way we live, then we'll, you'll lose that which you want most, your very life. In contrast, to follow Jesus, he says, you have to, in vertical comes, hate your life. That is, give up that living with yourself in the center and allow Christ to be the center and the motivation and the inspiration for how we live, the decisions we make, the choices we make. In all of our lives, says Jesus, I have to be the one who is king, the one who you look to for guidance and leading. And the contrast is there. It's loving your life and hating your life. Jesus puts it in very well-known words in other Gospels. He says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's about putting to death living for ourselves and allowing Christ to reign instead. Now that's the theory. <laughs> it's very hard, isn't it? We're human beings. If you're like me, you like to have your cake and eat it, sometimes too much during lockdown, as you can see. And we try to live for Christ. Yes, we like that. But we also want to live for ourselves, if we're honest. <laughs> That's what we do. And we try to do the two things at once. And you know doing two things at once often leads to disaster. 
We've seen it in the papers this week, the, the increased uh, laws regarding driving your car and using your handheld device. Why have they increased it? Because they know, and common sense tells you, driving and using your phone, not a good combination. And I'm talking about this, and I'm looking at Lynn, and I'm thinking about the first car we had. It was a red Chevette, Vauxhall Chevette. That's gone back a few years. Some of you might have never heard of a Chevette, but I'm sure you, most of you will. Uh, it's a Chevette, and when we lived in East Bride, we lived on top of a hill, and to get out, you had to go down to a T-junction. And I remember driving down one day, very slowly, approaching the junction, and there was a car turning right onto the hill. And he was fine, he kept turning, and, and he kept turning, and he kept turning until he was on my side of the road and we were into each other. We weren't going very fast. There was no major catastrophe, but I wasn't very chuffed. And I got out of the car, and before I could say anything to him, he said, I'm really sorry, mate, I was watching that bird over there. <laughs> and it wasn't a sparrow. <laughs> he was looking at. And he discovered a very real way. You can't drive the car and look at the birds in his language uh, at the same time. And that's what Jesus really is saying here. You can't live for yourself and for me. Something has to go. Something has to give. Something has to die. That's what he's saying. And he's calling us to die every day, to living for ourselves and to put living for him as a priority in our lives. That's what Jesus means when he says, come and follow me. Self-sacrifice also involves very quickly a life of service. Jesus lived his whole life as a life of service, didn't he? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve as he gave his life as a ransom for many. And his ultimate act of obedience to his Father's will was to go to that cross in that act of service. And Jesus says, to know me means being my servant. That's what he says there in verses 26. And being a servant is someone who follows the Master. And in those days, you would, the, the master would walk ahead. Disciples would be right behind, following on. Wherever the master leads, the disciples would follow. And that's what Jesus, that's the picture he's painting. Jesus said, if, if you're not really prepared to serve me, then can you really know me <laughs> and follow me? I can't just be your pal. I can't just be your buddy, in a sense. I have to be your Lord and your Master with you following wherever I lead. Because that's what being a Christian is all about, isn't it? Recognizing Jesus as our Lord, listening to what he says, and then doing what he asks of us. It's not really, in a sense, rocket science. In some senses, it's quite simple. And I wonder this morning, is Jesus asking something of you? Is God speaking to you? Has he been speaking to you recently about any act of service, calling you to serve him in any ministry, whether within the church or, or using your gifts and your time and all the talents you have in the church or outside in the community? And that will mean different things for all of us, serving Jesus. For some people, it means going away abroad as, as a missionary and living abroad and leaving family and home. For other people, it means serving him where we're based at work. 
but we're all called to serve, and that service changes as we get older, our health changes, circumstances change, the nature of it changes. But we're all called to serve. I got a letter today about, uh, last week, sorry, from Standard Life, I'm allowed to, there are other insurance firms, I should say, uh, just in case, about impending retirement date next year. You know, re retiring. You won't get a letter like that from Jesus. <laughs> because there is no retiral date until the day when we meet him face to face. We're called to serve him whatever way you can in the church or out in the community. Self-sacrifice and service. And we're called to trust him. It's there in verse 36. Saying no to yourself. Commit yourself to serving me. And trust me. It's there about when he speaks about the light. Put your trust in the light. Because we don't know where Jesus will lead us when we commit ourselves and give ourselves up to following him and serving him. But we can trust as the saying goes that he'll never lead us with his grace and power won't keep us. Now, I wonder if you're all thinking, this is awful heavy, Greg. This is awful hard. <laughs> and I agree with you. It is quite difficult because it wasn't very easy for Jesus. And you notice that in the passage later on that we're not really going to focus on. But Jesus struggled as well. As the shadow of the cross loomed closer, something in Jesus, we're told he was troubled. It means shocked, anxious, the revulsion. And he prays a prayer, and the NIV is quite sort of weak on it. It says, will I say, you know, as if it's a possible question. The Greek could actually be translated as a direct prayer. Father, save me from this hour. And something in Jesus, oh, shrinks back and recoils from what lies ahead, and yet Jesus knows there was no other way. <laughs> Only through him going to the cross will the Father be glorified, will the evil one be judged, and the sin of mankind dealt with. And at times, I shrink back, and I'm sure you shrink back as well, when we think about what it means when Jesus asks us to take up our cross and follow him day by day, because it goes against the grain, doesn't it? It goes against everything we are in our human selves, really. It goes against our pride. It cuts against our, our sense of independence, of wanting to be in control. It cuts across our self-righteousness, feeling that we've done something to deserve God's acceptance. It cuts across our religion. Probably one writer said the fastest growing religion in our world today is self-worship. I don't know if that's true. It's certainly the earliest religion if you go back to early chapters in Genesis. And so we say, yes, I, I do want to know Jesus. I like the idea of following Jesus. I'd love to know him. But at this price? Yes, I, I like Jesus as my friend. I like that verse. I like Jesus as my companion. I love that. Jesus is the one who provides for me, who knows all my circumstances, who cares for me. My healer, my guide. I like that kind of Jesus. Who wouldn't? But Jesus on a cross and asking me not just to survey the cross or to glory in it, but to actually share, in a sense, that cross and that experience. Mm. Not too sure. Well, that's how I react sometimes. 
might be the same for you. My friends, there is no other way for Jesus. And he makes it clear, I think, time and time again in the Gospels that there's no other way for you and I if we want to know him and follow him. Jesus' PR people must have been mad. Sachi and Sachi came into my mind. That shows you how old I am. I don't even know if they exist anymore. They used to be a very famous PR company. You probably heard them in the news a lot. But if they were there, they'd be pulling their hair out. Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? You should have let us see this speech before you put this out. We could have altered it a wee bit. We could have changed this, make it much more palatable for people. The spin doctors would have had a field day with it. You wouldn't be expecting on question time, Jesus, if you're going to be quoting things like this. No chance. But Jesus is always clear that while the gospel's free, yes, it's never cheap. And there is a cost to pay. But the wonderful news, and the news I'm sure we all know, is that as you follow him, you discover the wonderful paradox that flows right throughout this whole passage. A paradox modeled in Jesus himself that from death springs life. And as you die to living for yourself and seek day by day to try to put Christ first, so you discover, he says, eternal life. You save your life. Eternal life, by the way, in this gospel is not something that happens when you die. Eternal life in John's gospel begins now as we enter into that relationship of trust with Christ and we get a taste of that at the moment. And as you commit yourself to serving him, so we discover you have the promise of his presence in verse 26 with you along the way. And as you honor him, he says, so the Father will honor you. And as you trust in him, God will light up your life with his light. There's a story, most of you will have heard of Jim, Jim Elliot. He was one of five American missionaries who were martyred for their faith in, in 1956. They went with a desire to share the gospel and the good news of Jesus with Auka tribe of Indians. I think it was in Ecuador, and they discovered them living deep in the jungle, and they planned, and they were desperate to go and share the good news of Christ with these people. And they went, and they made contact with them, and they gave gifts with them, and then, for some reason, something went wrong. If you know the story, the five of them were, were speared to death as they tried to share Christ with those Indians. And seven years before, in 1949, Jim Elliot, in his own diary, had penned these words. He is no fool to give up what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. And what Jesus says to those Greeks, he says again today to you and to me, if you want to see me, you must see me as you are, as a sinner looking to your Savior on the cross and you can only meet me when you're prepared to in a sense deny yourself and, and serve me with your whole heart and trust in me completely if we want to see Jesus if we want to meet him if we want to follow him then these are his terms these are the words of the, the servant king who calls us now to follow him Let's uh, stand and sing that song, The Servant King. The words of, remind us of Jesus 
the one who serves by giving his life and calls us to offer up our lives as well. Lord God, as we, we thank you for your word this morning, as we remember again all that you have done for us on that cross, we ask that you would fill us again in your grace with a fresh desire to know you and to follow you, to serve you and to trust in you, wherever you lead us. Give us, in, in, give us the strength, Lord, to be faithful to the calling upon our lives. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's living mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Amen.